1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring into his own time. God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Thus says the Spirit of God. Well, good evening. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. And uh, this will be the last of a little topical series, Thinking on Contentment. And uh, in a sense, what we've tried, been trying to do is, um, is be able to sing that song uh, with integrity uh, for ourselves, that uh, we'd give thanks to God, trusting in his goodness, uh, whatever circumstances come. So uh, let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll have our last look. Our loving Father, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light, who no one can, sorry, no one has seen or can see, and yet you speak 
You speak, you've spoken in your son, Jesus Christ, and you speak today as your spirit brings these words to our hearts. So would we hear you clearly in a way that changes us, we pray. Amen. Okay, then, uh, we've said um, contentment. We've slightly defined it like this. Contentment is a deep satisfaction in the heart that trusts and delights in God's fatherly care in every circumstance. A deep satisfaction in the heart that trusts and delights, is able to give thanks in God's fatherly care. He's a father who loves us. He cares over every area of our lives, regardless of circumstances. It's quite hard, isn't it? So over the last few weeks, uh, uh, week one, we thought uh, primarily about the fact that contentment is independent of circumstances biblically. Not true for many in this world. Contentment goes up when life is good and goes down when life is bad. But uh, for, for the Christian, actually, it's, it's tied to who they are in Jesus Christ. So regardless of circumstances, contentment can be there. Uh, second week, we thought about, actually, you need to spend time with God to, uh, to develop this. This doesn't just happen. You don't wake up one morning and go, hey, I'm Mr. Content. Um, well, you might do. That's because the sun is shining and all is well. But it uh, work within your hearts. It takes time to do that. And you need to spend time with God in his word. Um, last week, we thought about the power of thankfulness and uh, indeed giving thanks as, uh, to God for all he's given uh, as a route into contentment. And then this last week, um, we're taking in one sense, I guess, a bit of a case study or a practical outworking on money. But it's not just an example because the majority of times that the New Testament in particular talks of contentment, money's there as well. Because covetousness is an opposite of contentment and will destroy it. Now, a couple of other things just on contentment generally before we go in. I hope you've realized it's not quick to get. So uh, we've spent four weeks on the subject. Ta-da! How's everyone feeling? You know, well, it's just changed my life. I'd be surprised. Um, I've been a Christian 20 years. I don't thoroughly understand or would claim to to be content in the Lord. It's, it's a path you walk down and grow in. It's not quick to get. But the flip side I, I want to stress is don't be slow to pursue it. So I heard uh, one comment over the last few weeks. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't call myself content. But I, you know, I'm young at the moment. When I'm older, contentment will come. So in the sense of, when I'm older, I'll use a Zimmer frame. Eventually, I'll get there. Or when I'm older, someone will give me a pension, won't they, please? When I'm older, uh, no, shake all those in government. Um, uh, when I'm older, someone will give me, it just, it just sort of happen when I'm older. I mean, you can't expect me to have it when I'm 20 or 30 or even 40. Don't be silly. When I'm, when I'm 60, 70, then it will come. It's just in a few years, but not now. I just don't need it now. Well, that's utterly naive. Because contentment is something you have to develop. It doesn't just land in your lap. Uh, unless you walk the path, you'll never get there. So you're fooling yourself if you think that. And more importantly, if you're a Christian, that is utterly dishonoring to God. Because contentment is not um, just a little uh, peripheral to the Christian life. There's a sense in which it's an essential part of it. Because contentment in God says, 
I trust you. I am satisfied in you. There's a sense in which when we live the Christian, uh, live the Christian life, there's, um, I don't know if this helps, there's a sort of active obedience and there's a passive obedience to the Christian life. And the active obedience is, I'm going to tell the truth, I'm going to be faithful in my relationships, I'm not going to steal. You know, the things we do, I'm going to love my neighbor, active. We go and do things to be obedient to God. It's an active obedience. But there's also a passive obedience, which is, you've given me enough. I trust you. You give me contentment. And a failure to pursue contentment in God or or, or walk the path towards it is basically saying, God, you know what? You're mean. You're nasty. You do not give me what I desire or what I want. You are a nasty God, and therefore I am not content because you have deprived me of my toys and I wanted them. And that's, you know, so a lack of contentment is not just... Well, does it really matter? I live the Christian life, but I'm not really content. But anyway, that'll come. That'll come with my pension and uh, a few years down the line. Actually, it's sin to fail to take contentment in God. I mean, none of us do it perfectly, of course. But to pursue, to grow in that, it matters. It's not just a peripheral on the fringes. It matters. And uh, tonight, then, we we'll take this uh, little case study or, uh, uh, I guess, a strong theme of the New Testament. Uh, you get it. Uh, here it comes. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We've brought nothing into the world, we've nothing out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Godliness with contentment. The backdrop, it was read, verse 5, there are some false teachers who think they can give this sort of pseudo-spirituality and take money from people. There's a form of godliness, but actually they're just in it for the money. And Paul says to Timothy, a young minister, don't do that. But, verse 6, don't pursue money. And then he comes back a little later. Verse, there are two buts, really. Don't do what they do. So but, verse 6, don't pursue money. And but, verse 11, do pursue godliness. That's what you should be doing, Timothy. Don't chase the money. Do chase godliness. But for our purposes tonight, I want to slightly chop it up differently and um, say uh, the two other strong themes that come out. Essentially, let's, let's just look at it in two ways. Don't, don't put your hope in wealth, but... Do put your hope in God. It's fairly simple. It's what the text is saying. Don't put your hope in wealth. Do put your hope in God. I mean, it's there in uh, verse 17. Is the, uh, says exactly that, really. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Put your hope in God. Okay, so let's take those two in turn. First, then, uh, don't put your hope in wealth, which really is verses 6 to 10. Now, here's an odd thing. Hands up if you really think money will make you happy or more money will make you happy. Now, no one's going to do it, are they? Because in, <clears throat> um, uh, you'd feel a bit crass doing that. No, and when you, no one really thinks that j- more money is the key to happiness. And yet, overwhelmingly, we do live that way. Yeah, if someone came, came and surveyed you, do, you, do you think money is the route to happiness? <laughs> no, don't be silly. Uh, but if someone put a camera on your life, hmm, it might be a little bit different. It might be a little bit different. 
The, um, but uh, that's just the, the way it is. Now, of course, there's a point, there's a sense in which so, at some point more money makes all the difference in the world. So globally, uh, 20,000 pounds. Uh, until you get, until you've got an income of 20,000 pounds globally, um, life is quite hard. So the happiness, all the surveys do it this way. The happiness, which way are you looking at this? Let me do it that way. The, uh, the happiness graph, no, that's wrong, is it that way? Uh, the happiness graph, Basically, until you get £20,000 of annual income a year, it goes whoop, it goes straight up like that. But at that point, then it just levels off. Because you need to be able to get a roof over your head and some food, and globally, 20000 will probably do that. I mean, the figure varies, of course. If you're living in a city centre, you might need a bit more cities. More expensive. But globally, something around about that. But above that figure... People will argue on that figure. I mean, to, there was a recent survey said £42,000 if you're living in central London. Uh, that, you know, things get a little bit better until that, well, whatever. You can argue slightly. But the point is, once you have, a, once you have the basics, um, lacking the basics is pretty miserable. But once you've got the basics, well, a few quid here and there doesn't really make that much difference. So uh, here's, uh, here's a report that came out fairly recently from the Economic Journal. Not that I read that, but I do read the newspapers who summarize such things. And uh, the headline was, More Money Makes Society Miserable. And uh, lots of very clever economists had uh, done their research, and uh, it's a whole article stressing this. Let me just give you one short quote. As a nation becomes wealthier, consumption shifts increasingly to buying status symbols with no intrinsic value, such as lavish jewellery, designer clothes, and luxury cars. But these present a zero-sum game for society. The owners are satisfied for a short while, but they appear very wealthy and everyone else left feeling worse off. So you just see what he's saying, or well, they're saying, there's more money, so some people buy flashier clothing, flashier jewellery, flashier, flashier cars. Others look on and go, Oh, he's got a nicer car than me, and feel miserable about it, and so they feel glum, and that's what's going on. Because he goes on to say, even those at the very top, they still always want more. So, uh, not in the report, but in an article which comments on it. Uh, they, there's an interview with uh, a woman called Holly Peterson. Her father is worth $1.9 billion dollars. Um, hedge fund guy from uh, New York and uh, she's being interviewed and uh, she describes a dinner party where she's at. The couple started off saying, oh, if you're going to buy all these things like um, uh, owning a jet, that's really expensive. To own a jet and run four houses and keep the horse horses going as well, well, then you really start spending money. The clincher, she says, comes from the wife. She turns to me and says conspiratorially, you know the thing about 20, by which she means $20 million a year, the thing about 20 is that after tax, it's only about 10. <laughs> Shockingly, everyone, everyone else around the table nods at her. Mm. I mean, how can you survive on $10 million? I mean, what are you going to... What are you going to do? How are you going to buy? How are you going to buy your clothes or your food or anything? You know, it's crazy. It's crazy. But even those in that stratosphere, that sort of bracket, they haven't got enough. How am I going to run the jet and the four houses and buy more horses? How can I do it? I just need more this year. Okay. 
Now, of course, it's very easy to mock that and think that's ridiculous, which is what I did. Um, <laughs> very easy to do that and say, silly people. Silly people with their jets and their flash houses and their jewellery and their designer cars. But, of course, many here would have similar, just uh, bring it a little bit down the scale, would have clothes with a certain designer label would have gadgets, maybe not aeroplanes, but sort of phones that do clever things and all sorts of little gadgets. And are they essential? No. But we look at other people and think, oh, he's got a better phone than me. Got Sky TV with the sport. Got slightly nicer designer clothes than me. And we're doing it precisely the same thing, aren't we? It's precisely the, okay, it's a little bit racketed down the, the, there are fewer zeros on the end, but it's precisely the same attitude. Do we, oh no, what, what happens if we don't have Sky TV with the sport? We'll watch less TV. Actually, the world won't end. It'll be all right. It's precisely the same attitude. So it's an odd thing, isn't it? We know that money won't buy happiness, and yet we do live that way. And Paul says, don't put your hope in riches. Don't think contentment will come from just a little bit more. The billionaires haven't got contentment. And don't be so stupid to say, well, you know, they're just daft, aren't they? If I had just a little bit more, then I'd be content. No, no, you're fooling yourself. Don't put your hope in riches. Now, in the text, he gives three little reasons uh, for that. Uh, first, verse 7, you can't take it with you. Uh, verse 7, we, take, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Uh, babies, when they're born, they don't come with a wallet. You know, quick, you know, quick, snip the umbilical cord and don't leave the wallet in the womb. Goodness knows what will be in there. You don't bring anything in and you can't take it with you. Pharaohs have tried. Of course, there are pyramids and tombs with loads of jewellery and little shabti servants to serve you in the... They just get stolen. Don't can't take it with you. Or think of it this way. Here's a choice given to you. You can have one week's holiday in absolute luxury in a private island in the Bahamas. For one week, it's yours with anything and everything you want. Ev everything is there for a week. Servants who have servants who have servants. It's just luxury, and you can enjoy that for a week. The trade-off is, when you get back to the UK, you have nothing. No house, no clothes, no food. You just get to walk around for 80 years naked. You have nothing. Would you take that deal? Is that a good deal? One week of unbelievable luxury. 80 years of nakedness and nothing until you die from cold. Um, <laughs> would you take that deal? And of course, in one sense, that's life, isn't it? Oh, I know that 80 years in this, on this planet is longer than a week, and it's conceptually a bit harder to get your head round, but a week in the scale of 80 years... 80 years in the scale of eternity, why put your hope, why invest everything now? 
The man who took a week's luxury and then lived with nothing is a madman. Why would you do that for 80 years opposed to eternity? You can't take it with you. And the person who invests and puts their hope in riches now is mad in the scheme of eternity. Can't take it with you. Now, of course, um, by contrast, uh, verse 8, I've got food and uh, clothing for today, verse 8, that's enough. That's enough. Great. Of course, life will be easier with a bit more in some ways. Of course, if I could buy a newer car, that would make my life easier. As breaks down, it's a pain. It costs more to maintain it than it's worth. It would be easier if I had a a newer car, yes. But of course, some would say, oh, well, I'll take your car. I'd love a car as opposed to not having a car and having to, you know, walk. Um, It's all relative, isn't it? And then if I had the newer car, what would happen? Oh, my neighbor's got a DVD in the back of the headrests. It'd be really easy on nice long journeys to shove the DVDs in and there'd be no from behind. That would make my life, I must have that. I must must have deep. Of course, it goes on and on and on. Just food and clothing. We'll be content with that. That'll do. So the first thing is uh, you can't take it with you. A second little thing, you'll fall into a trap if you uh, think money will make you content, if you put your hope in it. So verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, a trap, you know what a trap is. A trap is you see something, mmm, nice, and you go to nice thing, and you're unaware of your environment or what's going on. You go, nice thing, nice thing. And uh, you grab hold of the nice thing. And all of a sudden, you're ensnared. So uh, uh, one of our neighbors was telling me uh, the other day they've had some mice uh, in their house. So this is what you do if you have mice, by the way. So very clever. He uh, scattered flour all over the kitchen floor. So then worked out where they came in, which I thought was quite clever. Um, and then he got his mouse, went to Robert Dice and bought the mouse traps. And apparently, this is what you do. You get some... Um, women's tights, tie that onto the hook and smear it with peanut butter because they love peanut butter. Cheese is last century. Uh, <laughs> peanut butter and you put it on the tights because they pull and it's got a bit of stretch so that'll set the trap off. So mouse comes in, mmm, peanut butter. It probably doesn't know what it is. It just goes, mmm, nice. And, mmm, um, nice. And he's oblivious. Now, if it looked, would see big spring, would see looming metal barb, mmm, nice, goes in. Uh, grabs peanut butter and, and then it's called, of course, it's, it's trapped and that's it and bye-bye uh, and the mouse is gone. Um, and Paul is saying money is like that, it's a trap. You think, oh yeah, just, just a bit more, mm, then I could buy this, then I could live there, then I could, mm, and you get ensnared. Don't be naive, he says, because it happens slowly. You're drawn into this. Just slowly over time, the, the food you eat just gets a little bit nicer from nicer shops. The clothes you wear, just slightly nicer quality. The holidays you go on, you just, you know, I'm a bit older now. I deserve a little bit nicer. It just, the, it just all goes up over time. And you think, actually, I survived on this income when I was, whatever it was, 25, 30, and now 10 years on. I, why is the bill so different? Well, you're just, you're just drawn into the trap. I did a little, a little word search. I thought it was very striking. Luke chapter 12, 
Jesus, talking about money, says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It's the only sin in the New Testament that Jesus says, be on your guard against. Watch out. Isn't that really interesting? No other sin does he say, watch out, be on your guard. Because most of the time, it's fairly obvious. You're aware if you're lying. You're probably aware if you're committing adultery. You're aware if you're murdering. Or going to, but greed, you never notice. You never notice. Jesus says, and throughout the rest of the New Testament as well, it's the only sin that I've repeatedly, watch out, be on your guard, don't, don't let your guard down, it'll get you. Watch out, he says. You drift into it. Just drift over time. And what happens? Well, verse 9, yes, you fall into a trap and into foolish and harmful desires. Because the desire for more, it, it'll distort you over time. Okay, I just, just so we're clear, Paul is not saying uh, rich is bad, poverty good. He's not saying that. He's not naive. It's covetousness bad, contentment Good. That's what he's saying. There's no problem in one sense with being wealthy at all. But what do you do with your money? How do you spend your money? How do you feel about money? Those are the questions. Stay on your guard. I was thinking, what, what does that mean? How do, you, how do you stay on your guard? Well, there's at least a couple of ways the Bible suggests uh, a fairly obvious ways of staying on your guard, that you're not falling into Greed, not falling into covetousness. And I'm sure there's more, but two struck me as very obvious. The first would be, and I think this is the easiest way, what are you giving to God's work? So, uh, the, uh, throughout the Old Testament, perhaps Malachi 3 is the clearest. If you're a Christian or a believer and fail to tithe, give 10% of your income back to God, you're stealing from him. It's very strong language, isn't it, of Malachi 3. You are stealing from God if you don't return to him 10% of your income. It's just, I mean, it's one way of checking, isn't it? If you're not doing that, you're in a trap. You've fallen into it. And Jesus is saying, get out. It's only one way, of course, not, not the only way. But there's one little check. And the New Testament doesn't say the 10% thing. It just says be generous, go beyond that. But, you know, 10% is a minimum. And then as income and maturity, as you grow in maturity as a Christian, you give more than that. But that's the baseline. And if you're not even giving that, you're ensnared already. That's one way of watching out. And another way I think the Bible would suggest is to be accountable. And if you've been around, you've heard me say this endlessly. Uh, with your money, you have to be accountable to one or two others. What do you earn and what do you give? It's no good if it's your spouse, because they'll just play you on side. They know what you earn, and they'll just say, yes, that's plenty. Um, you have to, because it's hard. For those who were here, uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a, a men's brunch, uh, and uh, the issue of money came up, and there was a panel being interviewed. Very striking, one of the guys being interviewed, equity partner at a law firm, so his drawings are a very comfortable salary, uh, his drawings are a very comfortable amount each year. Very striking to hear him say, it is very hard to give away money. 
relatively speaking, I have a lot of money. But I have to tell you, if I didn't every so often tell these two guys what I'm earning and what I'm giving, I wouldn't give as much as I do. It's just very honest, very open of him. It's really hard to give away money. So be accountable on it. And of course, if you, if you think in your heart, oh, I'm not telling anyone. I'm not te- That's an outrage. I, there's no one I would tell what I earn or what I give. That's my business and it's mine. You're probably in the trap. Get out. Now, as I say, I'm sure there are many other ways of being on your guard or watching out, but those are a couple, you know, a baseline of uh, what's being given and uh, an accountability. But otherwise, well, watch out, says Paul, because verse 10, this is the trajectory. And here's the third little point here. Some will wander from the faith. So harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction, verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That's just striking, isn't it? There'll be some people to whom money becomes too important, so important that they'll slowly they'll drift away from the Christian faith. Slowly, over time, they'll, they'll wander. Not a sharp cut-off, but they'll just, just wander over time. Don't put your hope in wealth, he says. Let me just make one other uh, practical point here, or, or practical application, because let me just talk about debt briefly. Because debt is a big issue. It's a big issue. Uh, and it's a big issue in, in congregations like this, and people just drift into it. Uh, and generationally, that's very acceptable. So many here would have uh, parents who are baby boomers, born between 1945 and 1960, uh, people who grew up in an age of austerity. So my mother tells stories of, you know, the milkman will come asking to be paid, and they'll turn off the lights and hide under the beds and pretend no one was there. And at the end of the week, they'd have to go and beg their neighbors for some food because they had nothing in the cupboards and no money. So it's a very different climate to grow up in. And yet, that generation have seen their income, disposable income, go up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And for many, they're your parents. And uh, you look upon that and think, well, that's normal, isn't it? Just, you know, income, income, and just goes up and up and up and up and up and up and up. And they've been able to get all sorts of things. Look how how their wealth has grown as they've got older and and it becomes a sort of right. You think, that's my right. I expect that to happen to me. I'll just get older and I'll just get more money and more wealth. So, so, so I can buy all sorts of things now and I'll just pay for them later. And the concept of waiting, of delayed gratification, is just fizzling out. It struck me, I, I just did a little uh, check on the internet. It was 12 years ago that Barclay Card had the slogan, don't put it off, put it on. That was 12 years ago. Don't put it off, whatever you want to buy, put it on, the card. And since then, that sort of attitude has just accelerated. I want it, I'll have it. I'll pay for it sometime. And debt grows. 
Now, I'm not talking about secure debt, buying a car or a mortgage on a house, which in the worst comes to the worst, you just have to give the thing back. It's secure debt. Student loans, I think a slightly different um, uh, issue as well because essentially in real terms they're 0% interest. They're a slightly different category. But even that culture, I think, it just generates the sense of I'm in debt, so what? I'll just go into more. Debt is normal. Debt is what everyone does. So if I go, it just doesn't matter, does it? And it leads to a culture where, even amongst us and the congregations here, people go on crazy holidays that actually they can't afford. They're spending money on gadgets and clothing that they cannot afford. They have a lifestyle that they cannot afford. And it, you can't go on like that. So there'll be some here who've managed to you know, accumulate debts of 50, 60,000 pounds in their 20s. It's a lot of money. And that credit is a real enemy of contentment. Contentment says, I have enough for today and I'll give thanks. Credit says, I haven't got enough, I want a lot more, I'll grab it now. So I'd encourage you, culturally, resist the, the, the temptation, the, the, the accepted cultural norm. You just buy stuff and put it on credit. That is, it's an enemy of contentment, and people are getting into trouble. Uh, we're going to do, um, certainly on the weekend away, there's going to be a bit of a focus on this. One of the guys uh, who comes in the morning has done lots of excellent work on this uh, at a former church. He used to uh, give adult seminars um, and uh, he's distilled the best down. So he's going to do something on, on the house party and then follow up two Sunday afternoons afterwards on biblical principles and then how you handle your money, how you plan, how you have a budget. If you've gone into debt, here's the sensible way you pay off credit cards. Here's the crazy way. Uh, here's when you should start putting money into a pension. Here's what it looks like. For, just very practical, biblical, but then common sense on handling money. And I'd say, don't be proud. Many need to go. All of us will benefit. Having looked through his stuff, it is terrific. And we need help because we're a bit out of control in how we spend our money. Don't put your hope in riches. Uh, secondly, and somewhat more briefly, put your hope in God, which is verses 17 to 19. Put your hope in God. So verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Everything. Again, three practical things he tells us to do. The first is be rich in good deeds. So verse 18, command them to do good and be rich in good deeds. Actually, it's precisely the same things as uh, Timothy's been told to do uh, earlier on. So verse uh, 11, uh, you man of God, Timothy, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Pursue good deeds. Verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. No, he says, look, tell that to everyone, essentially. So the first is be rich in good deeds. Because and here's, it may be a shock to you. Godliness is a way to counteract covetousness. That would have been obvious. But Paul says, godliness, pursuing godliness, will drive out covetousness. 
Very striking. Do good, verse 18. Tell them to do good and be rich not in money, but in good deeds. Now, I realize I made a mistake uh, a few months ago in this. There's some, um, some people at church uh, whose hours are crazy. They do crazy hours in the office. And I think I've always been sympathetic to that and thought, you know, you, you know okay, you're, I, I'm not going to tell you to do anything. Your hours are crazy. You're going, you're surviving as a Christian and well done in, in that sort of culture and climate. And now I realize I wasn't being kind to them. Actually, the loving thing is to say, do good. I, I need... I know your hours are crazy, but you need to do good. You need to be rich in good deeds, because that will help you not just drift with the culture of your office and be covetous. It'll help you do good. Godliness, pursuing godliness, drives out covetousness. Do good deeds. Phone someone up. Go and visit someone. Cook a meal for someone. Help someone move. Do good. And here, I think, is my most profound thought as I reflect on 1 Timothy 6. You might not think this, so just humor me. This may be very obvious. I thought this was profound, so drum roll. Um, But uh, looking at this, verse 10, people wander from the faith. Verse 18, you don't wander into godliness. No one wanders into godliness. It doesn't... Oh, look what's happened. I've become really godly and I'm doing lots of godly things. Wow, that was lovely. I wonder how that happened. You don't wander in. You set your mind to do good. Be deliberate about it. If you, wander, if you go to a new city you don't know very well, I remember years ago um, as a student uh, going to Marrakesh and going into the, the market, the, the covered market in Marrakesh, and just, oh, this is interesting, oh, wandering around and, and looking at things, and then uh, you're just completely lost. If you wander aimlessly, you get lost and had to get a map and deliberately set off to go somewhere. And it's the same Paul is saying here. Godliness, you say, that's where I want to go, and I'm going for it. I'm pursuing it. Otherwise, if you don't set your mind to go somewhere, you just drift. You just wander. You don't wander into godliness. You have to determine to go for it, is his point. Uh, so uh, second thing, uh, be generous. Second little uh, pro- proactive thing, be generous. It's similar as it we've covered before. So verse 18, come on to do good, be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Be generous. And again, what does that look like? Uh, well, it'll vary on your circumstances. Because there's, a, there's an obvious financial element to that. Again, Mark chapter 12, Jesus looks on and... Um, an old widow puts two coins into the collection box at the temple and they don't even add up to a penny, we're told. And Jesus says, do you see her? That is generosity. That's phenomenal. Generosity is not the successful lawyer who earns 100K and gives 10K. Good for you, would say to Jesus. Generosity is the, I don't know, the nurse who earns 20 and gives four. Good for you. That's good says Jesus. Don't worry about the sums, but are you generous? Generosity. As I say, debt is becoming an issue in the congregation. And um, some are willing to share, as uh, has been expressed here. It's um, been lovely to see 
that uh, some people in the congregation have come forward and offered to help out those who are in debt. And so you've uh, got um, someone with some disposable income, someone who's racked up uh, a bit of debt, and it's just snowballing. The APR is getting out of control, and they just can't afford to pay it off. And each month, the sum is growing. And so the, someone with disposable income will say, OK, I'll pay off your £12,000 and you repay me interest-free, and so we sit down and we draw up a little contract, uh, which gets signed, and it's very lovely to see that happening. Very lovely. A willingness to share interest-free loans. So they could do more with their money. It could be put to better use. Of course it could. But they're saying, no, no, I've got more than I need. Of course I could get more. I've got more than I need right now, and I can help you and you're repaying it interest-free, and the difference that makes, the load that takes off people's shoulders, it's lovely to see the uh, community working that way. If you're able to do that and help out in that way, I mean, let, let me know, because there's, <laughs> there's always one or two who could benefit from it. Um, but it's lovely to see that going on. And that is a very practical way of saying, my hope is in God, not in wealth. Last little uh, practical thing that's going on here, verse 19, take hold of life. So verse 19, take hold of life. In doing this, in being generous, in this way, they'll lay up a treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you see the virtuous circle that's going on here? So being generous with money, that's hoping in God, that's saving in the bank of heaven. And as you do that, then you're grasping hold of God more firmly and you're getting contentment. As you do that, you can't put your hope in riches and put your hope in God. Remember Jesus, Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. The two are mutually exclusive. And you might sit there and think, oh, no, I can do that. I've got plenty of money, thank you very much, and I'm a Christian. Ta-da, I do both. Well, no, not according to the Bible, not according to Jesus, not according to Paul here. You're either, you're, it's one or the other you have your hope in. So you can, you can worship money as your God and have your hope in money and have Jesus as an insurance policy in your back pocket. You can do that, and I'm sure people do that. But you can't rest upon both of them. You either trust in one or the other. You put your hope in riches or you put your hope in God. Now, there we go. So stop liking money and uh, go away and be generous. That's easy, isn't it? It's not easy. It's not easy. Uh, God kindly uh, slapped me around the face recently. Um, I've always thought that I, I actually I don't really have a problem issue with money. I'm not particularly covered. Money doesn't. I have lots of. I have plenty of other sins, and you can ask me personally. But um, uh, plenty of other uh, more pressing sins in my life, and covetousness never really struck me as something uh, was an issue for me. And then over the last uh, uh, last few weeks, the house we live in, uh, which we've rented, the landlords are uh, intending to sell. And we've lived there for five years, and uh, a son at school just around the corner, loads of friends in the neighborhood, and we don't want to move. And just, just a bit more money, just a little bit more, 
and we might be able to do something and buy the place and stay. And all of a sudden, every time I'm walking down the street, I'm thinking about money. Where might we be able to play with this and juggle this and, you know, Lord, is there, is there a relative that I don't know about that might just, you know, just crazy, stupid things. You know, Lord, how, you know, any anonymous checks this week? Um, and all of a sudden I'm just, you know, of course it's not just money per se. It's, you know, I'm a bloke and I want to provide for family and, you know, there's, there's all sorts of other issues of pride going on in there as well. But all of a sudden it just bubbles up and you think, oh, okay, it just lurks, doesn't it? It doesn't take much. Didn't think money really bothered me until I needed some. Huh. It's there. It's hard. And so what do we do? Well, in truth, I've, that song, it's a very beautiful song that uh, we had sung to us. I've listened to that a lot in the last couple of weeks and been reminded, yes, there, there, oh, the differences that come between everything we want and what we really need. Jesus would like to stay in this house, but we don't need to. Have you provided a shelter, a roof, and food, and clothing for my family today? Yes. Every day? Yes. Okay. I give thanks to you. Have you provided salvation eternally as it was expressed? Am I blessed beyond what I could ever dream, whether I'm in, in abundance or in need? Oh, yeah, I am. Well, it's okay. So we'd love to stay here. But if we don't, that's all right. That's all right. You have something better. You want, there are lessons you need to teach us. That's okay. That's okay. And let's not be surprised. When Jesus Christ walked the earth, calling himself the Son of Man, let's put it very simply, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have anything. He didn't have any money to call his own. Didn't have a house. Of course, and then he was stripped of what he did have. His clothing, his life. And where is he now? He's in glory. He didn't have anything. He didn't have anywhere to lay his head. I think most of us here have got somewhere to lay our heads tonight. But he's now gone to glory. And he says, put your hope in me. Put your hope in me. And you'll be the same. Let's pray that we would. Father, how we long for a deep satisfaction in the heart that trusts and delights in your fatherly care in each and every circumstance. How we long for that. So please would you give us a desire to pursue godliness, a deliberate desire to pursue that rather than wandering into our desire for more, more money, more stuff, more security that we think it'll bring. Father, would you drive into us the truth that you're our Father who will provide what we need. And therefore, would we run from the trap and run to you. Amen.